A lot of this work seems like a marathon that never ends. Certainly, our guest is going to bring some of that marathon energy later today. But as I watched this week, the new developments, the patterns of resistance that are developing, um, new attacks and ways of trying to speak away and explain away the changes that are coming and that are necessary. The clock is starting to run out at the legislature. It seems like we never quite get a space to just go to something that somebody may call normal. Is this our normal? This is Bearing Witness. Part of the Racial Reckoning Project, the reflective dive into the week's events unfolding in this season of racial upheaval and, we hope, change. I'm Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Georgia Fort, an independent journalist. This week, we had a lot of different developments, so I'm not going to belabor the point too much. Miss Georgia, I know you've got a lot to catch us all up on, um, so I'm going to get right into it. Um, go ahead and catch us up, Miss Georgia. That's right. Well, we know that Eric Nelson, the defense attorney for Derek Chauvin, tried to uh, request a new trial based on the fact that one of the jurors was wearing a shirt that said, get your knee off our necks, Black Lives Matter, after attending a protest in Washington, D.C. to commemorate Martin Luther King. So that was a blow for uh, those of us who finally were able to take a sigh of relief after learning that he was found guilty. Now that's kind of hanging over our heads. Will Derek Chauvin get a new trial? If he gets a new trial, will he be found guilty again? And, and as people were mulling on that and accepting this new reality and waiting on a decision to be made, the Department of Justice announced that a grand jury had indicted all four officers, including Chauvin, on federal charges. And the interesting thing with uh, Derek Chauvin is that now uh, not only has he been indicted based on the fact that he violated George Floyd's constitutional rights, but they're looking at a case from 2017 where he choked a 14-year-old and hit him in the head with a flashlight. And so now you have to think, you had community leaders uh, for years who were calling out uh, injustices uh, from the Minneapolis Police Department. Specifically, I want to point to Communities United Against Police Brutality, Michelle Gross, who has investigated uh, a lot of these uh, police killings independently. And she was presenting facts uh, months ago about Derek Chauvin, his track record, and uh, calling out the fact that a lot of this was not being used as evidence in the trial. A lot of this stuff we never heard of. Mainstream media wouldn't report on it because they couldn't confirm it. And now here we're, we're seeing from the Department of Justice and their findings that a lot of the, the information she was presenting forward is facts. What was the reasoning for leaving his past behavior out of the trial? It, that's an interesting question because we know that George Floyd's past arrest uh -huh. was included. But uh, a lot of uh, the information that the Department of Justice is uncovering was not included in this trial. And so uh, it, it is, I mean, there's some relief that uh, there's a sense of accountability now. But the broader question is, what is going to happen with the Minneapolis Police Department mm. because of this investigation now being expanded to not just these four officers, but the entire department? 
having witnessed the police chief get on the stand and say, we do not train our officers to do that. That type of force is not authorized. Having high ranking lieutenant and sergeants testify that even if you had to use that type of force, the duration in which that type of force was used right. on George Floyd is not authorized. Now think about this. So if if Derek Chauvin had used force prior to George Floyd that was not authorized by the Minneapolis Police Department's training guidelines. Mm-hmm. Why was there no intervention? Why was there no accountability? Why was he in a position of leadership to train other officers? And so that is what the Minneapolis Police Department is going to have to answer to uh, the Department of Justice when they come and they start presenting this case like the one in 2017 where excessive force was used. Why was there not any intervention? Where was the disciplinary action? And so now the blood is not just on Derek Chauvin's hands. Mm -hmm. It, it's it to to your point. Um, you know, there was that press conference the day of that was calling for um, you know for the Biden administration to intervene for the investigations to come out. So so I'm hearing what hearing you say um, that this process not alone not only going through the rehashing possible rehashing of a trial, you know, as we haven't even yet got to the sentencing of Chauvin, but now we're going to be uncovering the past practice and and having to deal with not having to deal with, we must, <laughs> let's be clear, um, deal with the inaction that happened before. And this is the call that's been been around. You know, you I think you brought this up when we had Miss um, McGee and and um, on earlier that these aren't new calls that are coming in. These are, these are things that we've been saying forever and a day. I remember in our last episode, we talked a little bit about the incredulity that comes with us who have been pushing for these changes as people are having this new epiphany now and how and how much we have to take on that feeling but now as we get the stuff that we've been saying all over the time not necessarily specifically chauvin um but the minneapolis police department st paul police department i mean there's there's going to be a whole lot more scrutiny coming down and what are we going to do when we uncover behavior chauvin like behaviors amongst other officers is that going to be uh fair game now to do some take some corrective behavior um these are some of the questions that are popping up as I hear your reporting. Uh, the Department of Justice isn't just looking at those four officers. They're looking at the entire department. And they've also launched an investigation in Louisville where Breonna Taylor was killed. Oh, huh. And I'd like to point out the fact that, you know, these uh, types of investigations only started happening once we had a new administration. Mm. And so while we have heard a lot of community leaders uh, pleading with this administration to make statements and to hold press conferences, this federal investigation is uh, speaking for itself, regardless of what happens, appeals processes and you know all of these different things. And, and it's so painful to hear uh, s- certain white Americans, really defend mm. the the reasoning for the request for a new trial. It, it's very painful. It brings me back to the conversations we were having during jury selection about 
the jury selection process and how easily it is for black people to be excluded from that civic duty. Mm. And so when you're talking about a black man wearing a T-shirt that's embracing his humanity in celebration of one of the most iconic black leaders in this nation, I mean, you're basically, you're, ex- you're excluding every black American, basically. <laughs> You know, like from from this process. And if we held the same uh, microscope to white Americans where we start trolling through not just their social media pages, but their relatives media, uh, social media pages to find pictures of them, I'm sure we'll find the thin blue line on a T-shirt. Of someone. And so then now you're impartial. That's what you're saying. So, you know, it, it's it's just, it's very telling of how deep-rooted the systematic racism is, not only in our country, but in every facet of life. And again, you, you as you said, we being penalized for consciousness. That theme keeps coming in, being penalized for somehow being aware and connected to everyday life. I mean, I, I, I want to be real clear. And this was made clear to me um, by by a friend of mine um, with a law background. You know, the voir dire process is 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 designed to determine whether or not somebody has the ability to be impartial. This juror said that they had a in their questionnaire that they had a favorable view of Black Lives Matter. Um, which was not the rally that he was at. He was at the, the commemoration of the March on Washington. So, so you know, the even the loose veil, I am seeing, a, and I, I'm calling it a predictable pattern because it comes up all the time, but whenever there's advancement, whenever we move forward and we, and we are forced to acknowledge, wrong by choice, right by necessity, um, we are forced to acknowledge the real in front of us, particularly as it relates to justice, there are these predictable patterns of resistance that rise up. And one of them is to demonize any effort to raise consciousness. You know, I have this tenuous relationship with folks who, who in my presence work hard to try to land on, yeah, that's not right, right? However, we'll still try to work in some language like, well, you know, it's, and it comes usually on the end of, don't you think... And the following the don't you think is some kind of weird judo rationale to, to, to make there be something more to the story than kneeling on a man's neck until he dies, right? And, and, and there's this predictable patterns of resistance not only add to the exhaustion, but then we also have legislators who are now um, defending this notion that we are not a racist society. We see what's happening in front of us. We hear the rhetoric. We saw the words that were spoken on January 6th. Anybody who is questioning that um, is not questioning that off of, natu- uh, off of a natural lo- sitting back and looking at something logist- logically, right? This is, this is predictable patterns of resistance. It is indicative of what came out in terms of rhetoric in 1861. It's indicative of what came out post-Reconstruction. It's indicative of what came out prior to the Depression when we had um, horrible massacres of cities. It is indicative of what happened in the early 50s. It's indicative of what happened in response to Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. These are not new patterns. Um, And I think what's striking me is how similar. I, I would have expected it to, 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 to look and sound way more different each go around. And instead, just to be clear, that there's enough example of these predictable patterns of resistance. 
It's a lot. It's a lot. And I found myself at that place, too, where, it, you know, I really take a lot of pride in being a journalist and being unbiased and neutral and objective. But, I mean, there's nothing objective about humanity and, and life. And at what point do you just say, you know, enough is enough? It is absolutely ridiculous that we still don't have legislation passed. And it's absolutely ridiculous that we have done so much work in this community uh, presenting meaningful legislation. And and yet <laughs> the lawmakers cannot seem to get it across the finish line. I think one of the benefits to that point that you just made is that there are friends. There are friends and allies in community who demonstrate, I think we we saw this with Ms. McGee. We saw this when Nakima came on. There are folks who consistently have the have who bring us energy and revitalize us. Um, and Georgia, you and I share, well, this this your friend friend. Um, like <laughs> I get I get grand I get pulled in and grandfathered in, you know, based on on beautiful people that I have a relationship with. But I first met our guest. Um, in a space where I was low on energy and she reminded me of the energy that we should have. Um, and that that guest is Marianne Quiroz. Our guest, Marianne Quiroz, um, you may know her, well, in several ways. If you've been at a, a, an, a, a, an action and you've seen um, Mechica dancers who are doing their thing and you've seen a woman who seems to do the thing with baby in hand, still getting it, um, you've seen Marianne Carlos. If you've been to Indigenous Roots over on the east side, you've, you've, you've encountered that. There are so many places where all of a sudden it pops up. I first met her when uh, a, a friend in, in, in the community, um, Ayana Sola Machado said, hey, I can't go. We need chaperones on this trip with youth that's being organized by Marianne and a few other folks to take kids to Standing Rock. And I said, all right, I'll do it. Let's go. And <laughs> I meet I meet her and her love, her energy for this community and for youth and for justice and what is right and, our, and us connecting with our roots was palpable. Um, and it was an amazing experience. So welcome Friend, community member, um, always seem to have the energy and don't know where you got it. Show up at places deathly sick and still dance and be about the work. Welcome, Marianne. And be a mama and be be all the things. Hey, friend. (laughs) Hey, friends. Um, I'm... I'm so elated to see y'all's face. Not only was she um, doing some 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 international travel and work, but the moment she got back, youth came to her and said, "We want to go and do work, um, and 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 visit the space for for Brother Toledo in Chicago." And she got back on the road um, to make sure youth were able to go and and hold ceremony and pay their respects there. So when she says tired, we're talking about real tired, not just I didn't kind of get a little <laughs> sleep tired. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, it's I'm a sucker for the youth, like. I, it's really hard for me to say no to them, especially when they they speak up and they use their voice and and they ask for things. You know, um, growing up in an Asian Filipino cultural like home, um, we just kind of did our thing. You know, we my mom was a single mama, and so we just we had to help her out. So there wasn't really like time or space to just tell say what we wanted to do. And so I'm always proud of the youth who 
um, are just vocal, especially this generation. They know, for the most part, a lot of our young folks now know what they want and know what they are going to put up with and not put up with. And so as adults, um, it's just our responsibility to guide and foster that and create spaces and opportunities for them. Um, you, it's funny you brought up Standing Rock. You know, that was only supposed to be like 20 kids. <laughs> and we rolled in with like two Greyhound buses. There was like 104 of us. I don't even know. And that one we planned like in two yeah, weeks. Was... Thank you for being there. And actually, Anthony, that's how you know it's a village. And this has always just been how like how I was raised, right? That village mentality where we have to step in when there are gaps. Um, we have to provide opportunities and resources when um, because a lot of my parents' generation and grandparents' generation, it was a lot of like scarcity mm-hmm. mentality. And so we have to always like, now it's like shifting. And I always tell the youth, I'm like, there's abundance in everything. And so you just got to put it out there, ask the ancestors and also ask like a real live human. And then, <laughs> and then you know, to try and get things going and um, yeah, make and just be in movement. We just got to be in movement all the time. I love how you broke that down uh, because I, I feel like it translates uh, to like faith mm. without works is dead. And I feel like you bring that uh, you bring that spirit of abundance with you in in all of the work that you do, not just with youth, but even you know in interacting uh, with you as a community partner. Uh, you bring an abundance uh, mentality, and it's so important. I feel like, especially in this moment, as the community is shifting and coming to this revelation that everything we need is right here in our community that we already, we are already equipped with everything that we need. And um, I'm wondering how, for those who have like a hard time processing like an abundance mentality, because not everybody has that. How do, how do we help some people free the shackles of a poverty mindset and tap into that spirit of abundance? I think like growing up in the Philippines, there was that scarcity piece, but, you know, moving and immigrating here, uh, Dakota lands of, especially here in um, in Nisiska um, and east side of St. Paul, I think my mom, like my mom was a single mama. So I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she raised all four of us. There was always food at the table. And so it always felt like there was abundance and she always opened the doors for all our friends. If people, if like some of our friends got kicked out of their house, like they, they got to like crash at our place. And so I think my mom modeled it, right. It really shifted um, coming from the Philippines. And that was, you know, one of the reasons that we came is because um, our parents just, you know, really thought that there was more opportunities here for us. And, you know, it's a double-edged sword living here in America. You know, I I was hit with racism at the age of like nine, not even though like that was racism and that I would have to face it and deal with it every single day of my life, right? And then at the same time, I was holding up white supremacy and like putting white people at a pedestal, even though these were the same people that were treating me unfairly or um, judging me and my family, you know? And so, but then a lot of that really shifted um, you know, when my when I met Sergio, when I met my my partner, my partner, my life partner, my duality, um, he just came with so much um, confidence of his cultural background, and he just hmm. he didn't let anybody mess with him, and he just like east real east side, right? <laughs> like he's like, no, I'm 
real Mexican pride. And so I I feel like us kind of like this collaboration. I felt like we were like a superhero collaboration, Sergio and I, and that we just, you know, we brought out the best in each other and we polished um, each other's potentials. You know, you have to know your crew. You have to you have to have your your folks, the ones that are going to lift you up, the ones that are going to push you to level up each time, the ones that are going to hold you when you're most vulnerable, the one that are going to hold you when you're making mistakes. Right. Um, And for this generation, that's one thing I'm really trying to hold with them because they're so hung up on cancel culture. And I always say, you know, cancel enough folks, Mm. you're going to be all alone in your village. You're going to be cancel enough folks. There's no bridge. It, all of it is just going to come back to you. And then you're wondering, oh, how come I have to do everything by myself? And so I think, you know, the murder of George Floyd and um, the pandemic, everything that happened last year and even before that was really leading up to this break wide open of abundance. We saw it on mutual aid responses, community rapid responses, food distributions, foundations, like putting out money in there. Right. So I think we we just have to constantly use our voice, constantly use our lived experience as a way to be like, hey, things are shifting and we're not going to put up with white supremacy anymore. We're not going to put up with any of these things that have been traumatizing for our our babies. And so, so that's why I'm always like, how can I do better for the babies every day? Every day I wake up, I'm like, how can I do better for the babies? And not just my own, my own blood babies, but all the babies See, in the community. I love the way that you say that. And as you, as you listen to the first part of this today, there's about to be a whole lot more asked of us um, on the ground. And I feel like we're shifting to a place where nuance is going to matter. And we don't do good with nuance. And when nuance is required and complexity and depth is required, people of color tend to lose. We tend to, to not, we tend to have to work 10 times harder because we have to give whole history lessons before making a single point. I'm just curious you know, how, how you build space or how you, how you work with that, given that the task on our end to, to the burden of proof, if you will, seems to always be on us. It's so exhausting. And maybe that's why I put myself in a bubble where I'm not really having to be in those spaces anymore, where I'm having to explain Hmm. things. Like I said, um, and you all already know this, but like, 100% of like our board identify as people of color, BIPOC, um, same as our community partners. Like it's very intentional who who we have in this space. I'm not saying like white folks aren't welcome. Obviously everybody's welcome, but I'm like, it's just an intentional thing that we're trying to do because one of those reasons is actually not having to explain ourselves anymore to anyone. Like we're just going to do our thing we're going to um, build new systems while trying to dismantle current systems that hold up white supremacy, patriarchy, all of those things. Um, and yeah, I mean, no one's got time. We just, there's, we got to stop wasting our time explaining things to some folks because the only way I'm going to explain anything to someone is if you are going to compensate me in some way. And I'm, it doesn't even have to be money, mm. but you got to show up. Right. Like you got to show up because I'm putting in my time to explain things to you. So what are you going to do for us? What are you going to what are you doing for the babies? What are you doing for black, brown, native, indigenous peoples? 
And Marianne, so what you're doing, I think, in being intentional in that way is also creating financial ecosystems for uh, people in community who look like you and other, you know, uh, BIPOC people who identify, you know, with other cultural backgrounds. Uh, I'm curious to know if you have participated in any conversations about uh, economic withdrawal and the impact that that could have in dismantling some of those systems. Listen, white guilt is real (laughs) and white guilt money is real. (laughs) Well, And, And I love them for like supporting and giving financial support. But here's the thing. We check on that money. So if if we, like at Indigenous Roots, have to change ourselves in any type of way or shape or form that does not align with our vision or the movement of the people, we will not take that money. We we have that same issue at the Center for the African Diaspora. Um, you know, we bounce and comport until we realize we don't have to do that and can still find resource. And then our programming becomes better, more authentic, more connected. And when, but I mean, when people are like, yep, this money is coming your way, I'm going to be like, I'm going to hit up the five folks that I know right off the bat are doing the work. I'd be like, hey, I have the ability to like get this money, this financial support over your way. Are you Mm -hmm. able to take it? Is it, you know, so we got to just spread the love. We got to spread the abundance because here's my thing. I know we just continue to do the work that is relevant and intentional the resources will come. And um, so for me, I don't have an issue or we don't have an issue. If someone comes to us, an artist or a cultural group or a small business or um, an entrepreneur, and they're like, hey, you know, we need X amount of seed money, right, to do this work, or we want to do this project. Do you have something? And I'll, I'll hustle. Like, I'll be like, yep, I believe in that. That's in alignment with what we do. Let's get it going. And I think, um, but that only comes when mm-hmm. you have trust built, right? Like folks know your, your folks know the work. And because Sergio and I have been organizing like culturally, like cultural arts organizing on the East side, since we were in high school. The thing that keeps surfacing in community conversations that I have been a part of is, uh, in order to dismantle the systems does there need to be an economic withdrawal? Do, uh, specifically in the Black community, do do we need to divest? Do we need to stop consuming? Do we need to stop spending money in, you know, these huge, predominantly white-led organizations? Very similar, like, historically speaking, to what happened uh, for, mm-hmm. during the, the bus boycott. And, and Anthony, I, I think that you, you have brought that up uh, recently in community conversations as well. Uh, because... We are approaching one year post George Floyd and we still have no legislation passed. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, what a great example I feel like that has really like tangible evidence is all of the environmental divestment in banks like Wells Fargo and different like um, Citibank, all of those people like divesting because people like literally pulling their accounts 
their bank accounts out of there, right? Because of the, they're investing in pipelines and things like that. And there's actually movement and push on there, like really, really dedicated folks. And not just here, but like nationwide, right? Worldwide. You got to hit it where, where it hurts in their pockets, right? In their bank accounts. There was a, um, a march that we organized. Mm. It was a day without immigrants, and we were able to get 60 plus, I want it, maybe it was even 75, I don't know, like immigrant owned or mostly immigrant like employed uh, businesses, restaurants, stores. And we were only expecting like maybe a couple hundred folks to come to the march or like maybe just like to shut it down. And it was a, this was a nationwide one. And then we ended up organizing it um, through Indigenous Roots. And that was also like a, a, a pop-up march um, that was organized in less than 24 hours. And I think that day, folks were like, dang, I went to my favorite place and it was gone. Like, you know, how how are we supposed to survive if we don't have our brown, black, native, indigenous businesses like running, right? Like people feel it. And so I think it needs to be those huge impacts. And so... When I say like dismantling the system, for me, it's like we're creating a system at the same time. So we're creating co-ops, we're cre- creating coalitions and collectives and, um, you know, places where people can pull their monies together and their resources together so that we can start building a village with um, uh, a system that is equitable and accessible for folks who have been marginalized. I think your point, um, Georgia, um, is is really important. It 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 has to be unprofitable um, in order to to in in order to shift. And there are historical examples of that needing to be true. Um, remember that our own ending of our our slave practice, the thing that was undergirding our financial wealth as a nation, um, it it eventually became a, a moral piece. But at the root of the tension between North and South was the was the money. Y'all, y'all remember the Cheerios commercial with the biracial family and the YouTube comments went nuts and everybody in their mama who felt like they wanted to make a statement went out and bought a bunch of Honey Nut Cheerios because of the racist comments. So much so that General Mills made a second one and opened up the comments again and people bought more (laughs) Cheerios. We've seen a little nod to that because every business now has to have some kind of statement, you know, in support of anti-Asian hate or something like that, you know, on the surface level, but if there is real concern that we may take our money and stay with each other or work with each other or to get to get out of that space because of the lack of, of, of movement, that starts to unravel support for folks who are running, um, candidates who are running and needing to get uh, money and donors. Even the negotiations around the civil rights legislation had to have an economic conversation in order to bring folks along. Georgia, you've already spoken to the challenges of mo- of working purely legislatively or purely through the legal system. Um, and, and this is, again, another lever that we actually have access to um, and I think it's a very interesting um, and intriguing idea if we could only coalesce. Well, that was actually one of the biggest things, like the foundations were saying, like, we see you doing work, but we need to like see it like in a video or like produce it like in a in a way where like it's documented or it's shared in that way. And, 
you know me, I was just like, hey, I'm just trying to survive. Like, we're just trying to run this org, make sure the youth are safe, make sure the youth are elevating and leveling up and getting lifted up, you know, trying to keep these doors open. And you want me to produce something. This, your podcast, like sharing multiple perspectives, multiple lived experiences is what we need to continue to do if we're really going to shift systems because our voices need to be louder than what has been. Okay, can I just say some, it's off topic, but I, I promise it's sort of kind of related. So last night the kids were, you know, we have our, our movie night and the kids were like, oh, you know, well, let's watch Back to the Future. I was like, yeah, yeah. And I loved watching, like, you know, I love what Back to the Future. Then I started analyzing in my head, like I'm watching it, it's a good movie, but I'm like, no wonder as... Growing up in the eighties, nineties, or whatever, Come on. all we watched was white boys Come and on. white like movies, and it was. It, I was like, I was. That's all we watched, and then now I watch a lot of like the back eighties movies that I watched growing up with my kids. I was like, this is bullshit. I was like, this is what I was growing up watching, and so I think that's why this emphasis of investing on. These platforms, what you all bring, what Georgia brings is so important because our babies need to hear our own voices. They need to hear voices that are are, are similar to them. They need to see faces and melanin of, of multiple shades um, that's, that's representative of them. And so I don't think we finished watching <laughs> Back to the Future. And I love that movie. But I was just like, OK, let's go to bed. That that makes me think of a post that Samukta made recently. Samukta Vongsai, who is a playwright, um, dramaturg, who does amazing work and uses humor um, to not only tell the story and, and get into the nuance of, of refugee experiences in the in in, in the U.S., but also uh, many many issues, and you know, and so definitely go check out um, Samukta Vongsai's work. She's she's doing amazing work. I actually get to share a building with some of her tra- dramaturgs, so I get some 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 close access. She showed the meme of Mrs. Swan from Saturday Night Live, but over a picture of her, it said, Happy Asian Pacific Islander Month. And I was, (laughs) at first I was like a little confused. I'm like, is this supposed to be funny? And then I was confronted with the reality that I grew up watching this character. It was so racist and filled with so many stereotypes. And my mom didn't let us watch S- whatever show that was SNL. I don't know. Man, we no, it was um, it was Mad TV. Oh, Mad TV. Mad TV. That's what it yep. was. Yep. And, but I mean, we I watched that all the time. And uh, to think, you know, in this moment of racial reckoning, I think the unique thing that people who are on the outside looking in might not see is how cross cultural this movement has become. That when you're going to these protests, you're seeing people from all different walks of life, all backgrounds, nationalities, all cultures. But yet and still, we're all trying to overcome the white supremacy that has been embedded in us. And a lot of times it, it perpetuates through media. We're we're a lot. Yeah, we a lot. 
we we grow up with with these ideas and thoughts and uh, lack of representation and. Um, even in the public school systems, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I recently said, and, and I try to keep things framed in 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 the media lens, right? Like we've been dealing with fake news since Christopher Columbus, <laughs> <laughs> right? On yes, you know, and and so to have to unlearn these things, and yeah, it's 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 so deep, and it, and it's not just uh, the black community that's dealing with this. Uh, everyone has some level of of racism that they've had to endure, and uh, recently we've we've heard the calls for Asian and Black solidarity. Uh, why do you think that it's important that um, communities start to come together in this movement? I feel I'm blessed to grow up on the East Side because in the '90s it was already predominantly, or at least at my high school, predominantly students of color. Right. And, you know, we can talk about like anti-Blackness, anti-Latinx, anti-Native sentiment, anti-Asian. But for me, like raising my babies and trying to like create spaces for these youth and young people, I just say, hey, man, this is these are your neighbors. These are your your uh, this is your family. This is your relatives. And so without even having to always like say um, anti-Blackness. Like we just, I make sure that our youth are in Black-led spaces, that we're connecting with Kenna Cotman at Voice of Culture and we're doing intercultural drumming, you know, every other month. Um, we're um, making sure like, black, as far as like Black-Asian solidarity, I guess for me growing up, Black-Asian solidarity was actually strong. So I, maybe because like a lot of my friends we're dating each other. <laughs> and um, we just like, that's how we kicked it. Right. Like we were, we were all mixed in together. And so that's, I, I feel like I grew up in a different bubble here growing up in the East side in the school that I'm with. And so I'm only mimicking what I was raised with and what I was surrounded by. And that's not to negate that anti-blackness does not exist. I think for me, it's just like, this is how we deal with this issue by being with each other, by supporting each other, by showing up for each other. And I think for us, like as a, you know, with our Mexica Aztec dance group um, and then the youth that I was working with, I think, you know, Jamar Clark in, in when he was shot and killed in 2015, we were um, coming back from a, a cultural presentation. And I remember it was like blowing up in my newsfeed. And I asked the youth, I was like, Hey, would you all be down? to offer uh, some songs and some drumming and just be in space, actually. Just be in space, right? They were occupying the precinct. And we showed up there and everybody was just really excited and really welcoming because uh, we we tend to work in silos and that's because it's been ingrained in us to be, it's that um, colonized mindset of um, divide and conquer, you know? crabs in a bucket. So for me, I think, you know, Black Asian solidarity, Black Latinx solidarity, we we always just tell folks there is no liberation for anyone unless there's Black liberation. Mm. And that's just the truth because to, and people need to understand that this, the oppression of Black people, of African Americans started as soon as they were taken from their land, disconnected from their land. And I don't, that's not taught in, in our schools. 
that's not taught to our young people. They they they're learning this on the streets. They're learning this by listening to 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 Fort Report. They're listening to this by they're they're learning by listening to bearing witness. Do you know what I mean? So I don't know. You know me, I talk a lot, Georgia, and I can go on and on about this, but for me, it's just really important that we just show up for each other and not take up space, but know how to navigate through spaces without always, um, you know, white folks just be centering themselves. And so we also got to learn how to, to not be always in the center of things, but just show up in solidarity, just be present. We always end by, by just checking in, um, this week, in this moment, so not, not in this moment right now, how are you being you? Um, and then we'll close out our show. So I'll start with you, Miss Georgia, this week, given your coverage, how are you being, oh, no, don't start with you. All right. <laughs> I need <laughs> You're shaking your head no. Should I, I not know. start with you? Let, let our guests <laughs> go first. Where are your manners? All right. All right. Hey. Oh, man. <laughs> I don't know there how to is. be anything. I don't know how to be anything but me. All right, that, we'll, we'll, we'll give us some pointers and, and how are you? How is that working this week for you? Like, what are the things that you are doing to check in with you? Well, listen, the, first and foremost, you know, we're mothers every day, all day, every day. And so just honoring all the mamas, which means also honoring myself, right? Being able to give birth to amazing human beings. So I think I'm going to kick off my week with that. Just loving up my babies, making sure I'm making time for them. Um, and then also for the youth, you know, um, since most of them call me mama anyway, (laughs) but yeah, so just, that's how I'm going to show up and be me is just, um, I take my job as a mom kind of seriously. Like, I feel like I brought you into this world. So I'm going to try not to mess it up too much. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You know, try to not pass down all of that generational trauma subconsciously or consciously. So that's how I'm going to be me is just, um, waking up. Every day and to honor the mamas. That's what's up. Well, I'm being me in this moment by acknowledging the season I'm in. Uh, I always, you know, kind of look at things like, you know, seasons. And and we just wrapped up a season of uh, things being very fast-paced intense and heavy. And so uh, while I took maybe like a week to reflect, I find myself now like just digging deep and doing a lot of reading and learning and uh, strategizing on on how to make uh, sustainable systems for uh, not just the work that I'm doing, but uh, the people who I'm associated with as well and, and how to add more value and enhance uh, the work that I'm doing. I, I also reconnected with a former colleague um, from KMLJ, Disco T, who uh, many know that you know, he had um, some some very serious health issues and he overcame them by studying a lot about uh, health and healing. And so I've been in touch with him and, and just really picking his brain a lot about uh, the different herbs and, and holistic remedies that there are uh, that we often don't have access to when we stay within the confines of Western medicine. And so, yeah, just learning a lot and, and um, trying also to figure out the 
the way to to balance, you know, self-care because this season will not last and we will enter into another season of fast pace and heaviness. And so if we take this time uh, when when things are slower and easier and lighter to put systems in place, we can we can carry heavier loads longer when things pick up again, if that makes sense. Oh, Shay. Thank you for that. Um, you know, for me, uh, I'm being myself, um, being me right now is um, remembering my old friends in literature. Uh, Professor Ezra Hyland at the University of Minnesota is the person who I credit with teaching me how to really, really read, to bend the corners of the pages and to wear books out. And it was in his African-American literature class that I first came into contact with some of my favorite um my favorite writers and Octavia, I've been spending a lot of time with Octavia Butler, her prophetic voice, um, not as a science fiction writer, but as a prophet. And um, I've been re- I've been, I've been spending my time finding those stories and bringing those f- forward because they are, they are the literature about us tripping over each other. And some folks will see that in this space, especially in the Midwest and Minnesota in particular, we're a very conflict averse culture. But conflict tripping over each other is how we learn and and pull the the, the juice out of this beautiful uh, human interactions. And so doing that reading has found me tripping over conversations, being in the middle of, of supposedly conflict uh, conversations and actually seeing the beautiful fruit that comes when we actually put the things that matter on the table. And so I think that's how I've found myself being me in this moment is 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 deriving the wisdom that comes when we trip over each other. Well, man, this Mariette, always you bring that you bring that party, Miss Georgia. You put the you you put that knowledge in my head, um, and and keeping it real and putting it together and helping us to make sense of this. We always end by um, the quote that you brought to us, and so we'll go ahead and close out, Miss Georgia. In the words of Doctor Joy Lewis, "May the revolution be healing." This is bearing witness. This has been Bearing Witness with Anthony and Georgia, a part of the Racial Reckoning Project, The Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, KMOJ Radio, and the Minnesota Humanities Center with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.